0: So last week we talked about how I'm starting this new series and it's an important series to me because it's important to me because it's what I think in some ways we are as a church, but it's the direction that I think God wants us to go as a church. It's, it's why he brought us together. It's why he redeemed us in the first place, that we would be a healthy church And as I told you, on the back of that notes, the outline that some of you write, fill in the blanks and all, there's a list of those characteristics. And last week we talked about that this fundamental thing that if we don't get last week right, the rest of it doesn't really matter. The rest of it is going to be compromised, and that is for us to be a surrendered church, a church that is filled with living sacrifices, a church that is itself a living sacrifice. And one of the ways that that's expressed, one of the ways we know that is when church is no longer about simply what I get out of it. It's no longer after the service asking the questions, you know, what did you think? Did you like the music? Did you like the Bible study? Did you like the sermon? Did you like this? Did you like that? It's really not really about this service at all. It's so much more than that. We're surrendered. We're we're telling God, look God, it doesn't matter. It's all yours, all, whatever. I will be whoever you called me to be. We as a church will be whoever God calls us to be. We will give whatever we need to give. We will do whatever God leads us to do. And until we get there, we will never be a healthy church. As long as either as a church as a whole or collectively we hold on to things and they're not laid on the altar, made available to God, then we'll never get there. And you might go, well, I think I'm there. Well, we all think we're there. I think I'm there too sometimes. And then I realize I'm not. All doesn't mean all to me all the time. Sometimes I have a, I just have a preference. And that preference is so important to me that that's what has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, I just can't really do the things that I think, or I can't really connect, I can't really participate. Sometimes it's an attitude Sometimes it's just, I mean, it's just a thing that we're used to, we're comfortable with. You know, I don't know if women go through this, but men do. We have that pair of shoes. We have that T-shirt. Yes, it's got a hole in it. There are stains. The shoe looks like it worn out. But we love those shoes. But what do our well-meaning wives often do they surprise us with a new t-shirt. And it's just not quite the same, at least not at first, because we liked that one. We liked those shoes and they felt comfortable. And even though the new shoes may be better, it doesn't matter. We liked it. It's what we were used to. Well, how do we know? How do we know we're not completely surrendered. How do we know when we think we're surrendered, when we think we've laid everything on the altar and said we're a living sacrifice, but really we got a whole bunch of things back here? How do we know that? That's what we're gonna talk about today. And just remember, what I I was talking about being a healthy church or a growing church, a healthier church, it's not that we're all there because we will never all be there we will always be on the journey but here's the healthy church the healthy church is the church that's committed to the journey the healthy church is the church that says okay maybe there are things i'm 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 holding back from god maybe there are these i'm not fully committed i'm not a living sacrifice but i want to be and i'll keep moving in that direction so it's not about being perfect It's not about going, wow, this church is a little too serious about Jesus. No. It's about moving in the direction he wants us to be. So I thought about this, and I went with the very straightforward title for today, and that was, a healthy church is a discipling church. But the other one that I thought of is that a healthy church is a hungry church. A healthy church is a hungry church. And I want you to keep those two titles in mind as, as we go through this, this look at this Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and we think about discipleship, we think about hunger. And when we think about the world that we live in today, the world we live in today, especially our society, our culture, it is more connected and it is more informed than it has ever been. In some ways, that is wonderful. That is good. Um, You know, we now have on our phones more information than than libraries have. When I was growing up, um, I was growing up when I was young, elementary school, before we moved to Hawaii, we were in a small town in Oklahoma. And, you know, I wanted to learn. I, wanted, I was fascinated by certain subjects. One was history. And I really wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. And I remember in first and second grade, they had this, this um, series of books. And there was like, I don't know, 120, 130 in, the, in there. And then there was the other books in our elementary library, in our first and second grade library. And, and I wanted to read them all, and sadly, I could read them all because there were only so few. And I remember the day when when my teacher, my second grade teacher, said, well, you've read all the books in our first and second grade library. Let's go to the third and fourth grade library. And then I remember going in that room, and I remember seeing the book, this book, and I still remember the book, it was Robin Hood. And I love Robin Hood, I love the stories of Robin Hood. So I chose Robin Hood and the third and fourth graders are all like, oh, he chose a chapter book, you know? Wow. But the problem was is that in our entire school from K through 12 in rural Oklahoma, there were only so many books. So many books that I could read them all. I could never do that. I could never do that if we were in a bigger city and I could never do that now because we're so connected. There's so much information. There's so much that you can can access and that's a great thing in one hand. It's a terrible thing on another hand. It's a terrible thing in the sense that if you think we still live in a world where you can give simplistic answers to questions that people around you are asking. That people who aren't Christians, who maybe want to be Christians, but are unsure because it doesn't seem intellectually consistent, or there seems to be some contradiction, or there seems to be some flaw, there's something that worries them, and they come to you and they ask you a question, and they're connected to this whole universe of information. We need to know. We need to be more than just be able to tell them, um, well, it's true because it's true. Or the Bible says it, so it must be true. We live in a world where children can go online and you might be terrified that they might, oh, go to some site that has inappropriate pictures you may be terrified that they can go onto sites that has all this, this violence and degradation. But you know what you should be equally or more terrified? Is that they can engage in discussions and conversations with atheists who are way smarter than they are. That they can that they can access movies and TV shows that, that disparage Christianity that make it look like if you believe in a God, you must be somehow not as enlightened. That that was for kind of primitive human beings, but we've moved past it. You see, in all of our concerns about this information, in all of our concerns about the pictures people might see or the images that they might see, we forget that the most important battle is the battle that's happening in their minds and they're being overwhelmed with information that they can access 24 hours a day, are you ready to respond? Are you ready to give a reasoned defense for the hope that lies within you? If it's not for the sake of The world, if it's not for the sake of your culture, your society, could it just be for the sake of your children? Could it just be for the sake of your grandchildren? Or have you just said, nah, there's nothing I can do about it. I'll just pray for them. And that's what I'll do. The world is connected, more connected and more informed than ever before. And by the way, I in no way advocate, well, then we should just shut down. We should not let our children access the world. Let's go home and rip out the cable TV and pull the internet, smash the smartphones. No, that's not the answer. Because you know what? The world is only going to become increasingly connected and increasingly more informed what we need to do is to help ourselves and to help our children and our grandchildren and others know how to walk into that world and not just hold on to their faith. If all you really want, you, you know, you, if the only concern you have is for your children to hold on to their faith, you're halfway there. Maybe not half, maybe a quarter. I haven't done the statistics, but you're not fully there. And so many Christian parents are so concerned that their children hold on to their faith and that's it. No. It's not just holding on to their faith. It's that when they walk into that world that they will live out their faith in such a dynamic way that others will see the truth of the gospel. That's what we need to care about. Not that they'll just simply perhaps lose their faith. What good is it if they hold on to their faith, but they're not equipped to ever share it? If they're not equipped to ever help their friends, the ones that you will never come into contact, who will never talk to you, that long after those of us who are older have left this earth, that they're the ones who remain, Are we preparing them for that? So here's Paul. Talking to this church at Rome. Talking to the church that's at the heart of the beast. Everything that's good and bad about Roman culture right there. Pressed together in the city of Rome. And he's just spent 11 chapters telling them about what the gospel is. And now he starts in chapter 12 to say, this then is how you should live. Last week, surrendered church. This week, we look at verse 2. And verse 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. see, one of the things that I think sometimes we forget as a church, and I think we forget this as Christians, is what we read in the Great Commission. The Great Commission gives us this primary task of the church, and the primary task of the church is to make disciples. Make disciples doesn't mean simply bringing people to Christ. Make disciples is the whole process. You know, what if you sent, you decided you were going to send your kid to a private school, and some of you do send your kids to private schools, and so you go to all the meetings, you register, um, you register for them, you pay the tuition, and then the school says, all right, that's good, thanks. We've made them a student. What would you say? You'd be pretty upset. You're like, wait. It wasn't just about becoming a student by registering, by deciding I'm going to be a student or my child's going to be a student. Isn't there a process of learning that should take place? Isn't being a student, this this day-to-day walking and learning and growing over the next how many years, isn't that what being a student is? And of course you would go, this is unacceptable, give me my money back. But for some reason, we read the words, make disciples, and we think that just means, oh, get them in the door. Get them to pray a prayer. Get them to to say that they believe in Jesus. And you've made a disciple. You haven't made a disciple any more than registering your kid for school and paying tuition makes them a student. It's a process. And it's the primary task. Of the church. Notice I said the primary task of the church. It's not the primary task of the pastor. It's not the primary task of the super serious Christians. It's not the primary task of those who've been educated at seminary or college. It's the primary task of the church. Jesus didn't say, Go you, therefore, into the world. And by the way, by you, I just mean a select few, the special ones. No. He sends the church into the world to make disciples. And what does that mean? That means that all of us should be in the process of either being discipled or discipling others. In other words, we should all be in the process of being a student or teaching others. In fact, in a healthy church, because we never really learn everything, we never really even get close to knowing all that it means to to be like Christ and to follow God. We're, We're lifelong learners. But at some point in time, we also become teachers. We're all to be involved in this. That's a healthy church. And you might go, well, wait. That's going to take time. I I might have to be taught more. I, I might need training. Remember last week? Surrendered church. If you're a surrendered church, if it's a living sacrifice, if it's all there, and you realize the primary task is discipleship, you're like, okay, let me disciple. Okay, let me be discipled. Yes, it's going to take my time. Yes, it's going to take effort. Let me do it. I'm ready. It's the primary task of the church. I I cannot let it go. It's not an optional thing. It's at the very heart of who we are. But you might go like, but, but you know, that's, that's not how I was brought up. That's, you know, that's, that's not the church that I remember. I don't remember this discipleship talk and people being this serious about it. I'm more comfortable with the church that I grew up in. Remember last week. Surrender, church, living sacrifice, even my past. When I realize the truth, when I see what's there, it doesn't matter whether I've been living without the truth for 40 years, 50 years, 5 days, 10 days, it doesn't matter. It's time to then follow the truth. And the truth says this, Church, you are to be a disciple-making group period. It begins by being discipled ourselves. So I think it's good for us to actually look at what does discipleship mean. And I think this is a nice summary of it, even though he doesn't use the word discipleship. Because the first thing that discipleship does is what it says right there at the beginning. Do not be conformed to this world. Discipleship keeps us from being shaped by the world. From being shaped by what the world values. By being shaped by the games that the world plays and playing by the game, the, the rules that the world thinks we should play by. Discipleship helps us to know the difference between what God values and what we see in Jesus Christ and what the world values. It helps us to see the difference in motivation. You see, I've heard this for years and years and years and depending on who I'm talking to, it means different things. And maybe you've said it yourself, but the, somebody at some point will be talking about some subject about the church, and they'll say, you know, the problem with the church is that the church has become just like the world. That's what they'll say. They won't say it like that. That's Only Richard Nixon would say it that way. Um, that's not even a good Nixon, sorry. Um, but people will say, the church has become just like the world. I learned after a while to ask them, what do you mean by that? Because what people usually mean is they usually mean some externality. They mean, they usually mean not that it's become like the world, but it kind of looks like the world, that it's using the world's music or instruments or habits or customs or traditions. And what they really mean is not that the church has become like the world. What they mean is that the church has stopped being like the world I grew up in and become like the world that it is today. That's what they really mean. But they say the church has become like the world. And the reason I can prove this is because anybody who ever has told me this doesn't want to live the way the first century church lived. You know when the church first became like the world? not sure first, but it's on the list, is when we started having buildings like this. First century church, meeting in people's houses. What would happen if I said, you know what? Let's not be like the world anymore. Let's sell this property and start meeting in people's houses. How many of you would stay with us? How many of you would go, you can't do that? You can't do that? okay, if I can't do that, if that's not something we should do, let's not say the church has become like the world because having a building is being like the world. Anybody speak Koine Greek? Anyone? If we want to stop being like the world and be like the first century church, then let's all go learn Koine Greek and we'll study and we'll sing in Koine Greek. I actually have, somebody found a a fragment, a manuscript of a first century Christian hymn written in Greek and it actually has the musical notations on it. Since it's the only song we have from the first century, maybe it's the only song we should sing What do we really mean when we say the church has become like the world? And how that becomes just a code word for, I really don't like something, or that's not what I'm used to. We don't want to become like the world. We don't, as individuals and as a church, wanna become like the world but we don't want to become like the world in the ways that actually matter. What does the world value? How does the world operate? You see, discipleship, true discipleship, allows us the freedom to look like the world in the ways that don't matter, but do so in such a way that we do not become like the world in the ways that do matter. let's Say that again. Discipleship allows us to look like the world in the ways that don't matter, so that we do not become like the world in the ways that do matter. You see, the Bible tells us that we need to be in the world but not of the world. Christians through 2,000 years have adapted to their society. It's why we don't speak Greek anymore in the service. It's why we don't sing the same songs. It's why we don't meet in churches. It's why I don't sit and teach and you don't stand, by the way, which is how Jesus taught. We don't do it because our society changed, our culture changed. But you know, all of us would probably at some point say, yeah, those things don't matter. And so we have, the, we have the ability to do that. We have the ability to discern and see the things that don't matter and the things that do matter. And the things that do matter, we hold to. We treasure. We protect. You see, just being a living sacrifice, just having that attitude and saying, I want to be a living sacrifice, I want to give everything to God. I want to surrender everything to God. But then to say, but I really don't need to learn anything. It's not enough. It's not enough to say, I, I give it all. I surrender all. But don't talk to me anymore. But don't teach me. Discipleship should be a natural response to those who are living sacrifices. Because if I say, God, I, out of my love for you, out of my gratitude for what you've done, out of how you've changed my life, what you've given me, because of that, I'm a living sacrifice, I'm on the altar, it's all yours. My very next step should be like, okay, tell me, tell me what to do. Tell me what's next. Tell me, because I want to do it. I don't ever want to do anything that's even remotely outside your will. I want to know truth. I want to live truth. It's all yours. The second point is that discipleship helps us be more like Jesus. It not only says, do not be conformed to this world, it also says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And whenever Paul talks about being transformed, he means becoming like Jesus. You know, when I was a kid in the 70s, or early 70s, I told you guys that I can love every type of music and if heaven has every type of music I can love except country music, well, Here's a confession, there was one country music singer that I not just loved, I actually kind of idolized him. We have a picture of him, you guys know who that is? Who's that? Johnny Cash, when I was like six, seven years old for some reason, I love Johnny Cash. Oh, we would listen to The Boy Named Sue all the time, again and again and again, love that song. And I even started wearing black all the time and I'd wear my collar up, just like Johnny Cash, right? I never wanted to be a Johnny Cash impersonator or sing like Johnny Cash, but I wanted to look like him. You see, discipleship doesn't just help us look like Jesus. In fact, just like what we look like when we talk about the church becoming the world isn't really that important as important as what the church is and what the church values. When we're becoming like Jesus, it's not that we all look like Jesus. That's one of the great things about us not having any way of describing what Jesus actually looked like. It's not about looking like Jesus. It's becoming more like Jesus. Not just doing what Jesus would do? I think that's part of the problem is that we think that gives us a pass because Jesus didn't confront, at least we don't find in the New Testament, Jesus confronting so many things that we do. Would Jesus have played violent video games? I don't know. Well, the Bible doesn't say, so I guess it's okay. Would Jesus have listened to the music that I listened to? Would he have engaged in the business practices I've engaged in? What do you have fudged a little bit on his income taxes because, you know, no one's going to find out and it's really not hurting anyone. Discipleship isn't just looking like Jesus because that's that's a limited look, just like me wanting to look like Johnny Cash. Discipleship, true discipleship is when we become more like Jesus. When we stop thinking the way the world does and we realize it's not about who has the most toys wins. It's not about who's, who can get the most possessions or who can get the, the fastest promotion or who, who you know, who it's all about me and my career and my satisfaction and my happiness. It's not about that at all. It's a whole different way of thinking. That's one way we know. Another way we know is this is that the more you really become like Jesus, the more you reflect Jesus' values, the more the world will hate you. The more that people who, who want to operate by the world's values will hate you, just like they hated Jesus. Discipleship helps us become more like Jesus while preventing us from being shaped by the world. Discipleship also helps us to know God's will. A lot of people, you know, they're, you know, they're asking, like, oh, what, what does God want? What's His will? How can I know what He wants? I'll do it if I know it. It's uh, probably not true. But we want to know God's will. Well, one thing that we know for sure is what He's already said. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's his will. We already said in the Great Commission, go you therefore into all the world and make disciples. Are we doing the part of God's will that we know? Or are we kind of neglecting the part we know and asking for something else. Discipleship helps us to know God's will. You see, if discipleship isn't taking place in the church, if all of us aren't on this journey together, growing to become more and more like Jesus and growing into knowing his will more and more, when we disagree, we're going to get stuck. See, If I'm not being discipled, or you're not being discipled, and we're not growing, and we disagree, what hope do you have that I will ever get it? I will ever understand what you're saying, and what hope do I have that you will ever get it? We won't. So our disagreement will turn into division. But if we're all on the process together, if we're all growing together, if we're all being discipled, even though we're at different levels, what I can say is, you might not see it today, but I know someday you will. And what you can say to me is, you don't see it today, but someday you will, because we're all on the same journey. Discipleship is key to the unity of the church. Paul says in another letter, he says, he says that if a weaker brother if a weaker brother has problems with something that he's doing, in this case, he was talking about eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. He said, if a weaker brother is going to stumble because of that, I'll never eat meat again. And I used to be bothered by that because that used to make me think like, oh, that's terrible. The weaker brothers, the weaker sisters, the weaker Christians are pulling the church down. And by weaker, Paul meant the legalist, the person who is living according to laws and rituals. That was weaker. And it confused me, like that's gonna keep pulling, and whenever I teach on this, people would ask me like, so what, do we just always go along with the person who's a legalist? That doesn't seem good. But I realized when you put it together, with this idea of the, the living sacrifice and discipleship. And that if we're all on the same journey, I cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols if it makes my weaker brother stumble because I believe my weaker brother is on the process of discipleship that someday he's going to be freed from all those superstitions and those, those rules. And he's going to understand what I understand. But until that point... I don't need to eat meat. Be totally different if this guy wasn't being discipled. If this guy wasn't growing. Because he's never going to change. He's always going to be the same. But if we're all in this process of growing, maintain unity, extend grace. It not only helps us as a church to know God's will, it helps us to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect to God. I can turn the question around. What is God's will? God's will is whatever is good. Then your next question should be what is good? And do you know where we find the definition of good? Ancient words ever true. Changing me, changing you. You know what process we do we do to learn out what to learn what is good? It's called discipleship. I don't learn what is good just by thinking it seems good to me, right? I know what is good because I know what God says is good in his word. And finally, a point that I hope has already been made, but I'll repeat it because some of you can't sleep unless you fill in every blank. Discipleship is essential to being living sacrifices. You cannot truly be a living sacrifice if you are not being discipled. You cannot say I'm surrendered, but I don't want to know what you have to say. As I said earlier, surrendered means we want to know. We want to know so that we can do. And if we can't do it, we want to learn how. This Bible verse makes clear that discipleship, the training of our minds, is not simply that we acquire knowledge. Discipleship is when we, in, when, when we acquire knowledge that transforms us into Christ-likeness and prevents us from being like the world. understand why I said the titles? It's... A discipling church, a discipled church, a hungry church. To me, both of those are are appropriate titles. Because as Christians, we need to hunger after God's word. We need to hunger after his truth. We have to know that we don't have enough and we will never have enough, but he's called us to continue to pursue and he'll meet us in that. That every time I think I know, I also realize there's so much more to know. And that's my question. My question this week is when is the last time you hungered for God's word? When is the last time you left a Bible study or left a personal time of study and devotion or left a worship service where you heard a sermon and you were, you were sad that it was over because you wanted so much more? When is the last time the disciple, the good disciple, hungers after God's word? When I was in Kenya... I taught these students in Kenya that were going through um, a college degree, and they were doing it as a cohort. So they basically all took the same classes at the same time. And if they missed a class or if they failed a class, they had to wait four years before it would come around again. And I remember one of these, these, these men in the class, there was, was men and women, but this was one of the men in the class. He. I heard the story, and he was sitting in my class, and, um, and the, the dean talked to me, and he said, do you know this guy, this guy, you know, what, you know what happened? This guy fell behind in his tuition payments, and the tuition payments were tiny, $500 for a whole year. You think about that, college education, $500 for a whole year in America, that'd be awesome. He couldn't pay it. And they told him, you know, if you can't pay, you can't come to school this semester. And so this guy brought the deed to his house and he said, here's my house. I need to learn. You know what? when I went back to America and I looked at the faces of my students who thought it was a privilege to be there, who thought they deserved to be there, they had a right to be there, they took learning just for granted that it would be there, and I remembered that guy. Oh, I would tell them about that guy. But it was an honor to teach that guy. He wanted to know He was desperate to know. I want to be like that guy. I want us all to be like that guy.